The scripture reading this morning is from Genesis. We're still in our series in Romans, but I will read that text as a part of the sermon. And hopefully by the time we get to the end of the sermon, you'll understand why we began here. Reading from Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 12. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. And said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put me in charge of everything that he has. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. just want to say that the remote control for the presenter is, is missing in action. So um, that means that the folks at the back are going to have to try to keep up, which is going to be challenging because today of all days, I have about three times as many slides as what I normally have for a Sunday morning service. So I know that they will do a wonderful job, but if there's any lag in that or if you see me, you know, desperately trying to find something with my right hand, that's because the remote is missing. You may also notice that the title of this sermon is a little different. If you looked at the bulletin that may have been available on the internet, um, it says, when God says, go ahead. And that's part of the sermon today. But often it's hard to come up with a title and figure out all of the logistics of it before the thing is actually on paper. And at the point where it was actually on paper, I contacted Mary and said, have you printed the bulletins yet? And she said, no. And I said, okay, change the scripture text to Genesis chapter 39, 1 to 12, and the title of the sermon to flee fornication. And again, I think that will become obvious as we go along. But we're still looking at Romans chapter 1. And I will freely admit that we have come to a section of this chapter that a part of me wanted to just skip over. And it's very often done these days where we just skip over some of what we consider to be the hard parts 
of scripture, but I think that has not served us well. So we're going to engage with Romans 1 this Sunday and one more time next Sunday as we work our way through what we could call the Romans road to salvation or maybe the gospel according to the Apostle Paul. And we were already here last Lord's Day in Romans chapter 1 looking at verses 16 to 24, and we saw, among other things, that even though what can be known about God is plain to men, having been clearly perceived since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, even his eternal power and divine nature, so more than just the mere fact that there is a God, there were things that God has communicated through the creation of the natural world But men suppress this truth by their unrighteousness and are therefore without excuse for their wrongdoing. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. They did not worship him as they ought. They did not give to him the glory that was due his name. They became foolish in their thinking, futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, as humanity always does, the Apostle Paul says they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the incorruptible God would be another way of translating that Greek word, for images resembling corruptible man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, because of what we just read, about how they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible creatures. Because of this, we're told, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, I will come back to this later, but this is important. That's why the little interruption in the slide At this point, I want us to notice that although the Apostle Paul wrote three times in Romans chapter 1 that God gave them up to the very natural consequences of their sin, by the way, that's our sin, not once did Paul write that God gave up on them. He wrote, God gave them up, but he did not write that God gave up on them, and it's an important distinction. And as I said, we will come back to it later, but for now, just remember this. When Romans 1 says that God gave them up, it is unequivocally not saying that God gave up on them. He did not give up on any people or any categories of people that are being discussed in this chapter. If that were the case then Romans is not the road to salvation, it's the road to perdition. God did not give up. That's not what this passage is saying, and neither should we. So when God still, when, when, when people exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, God did give them up. He gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, the lusts were already there. He gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
which is the corruption of the way they think and eventually the way they behave. And this fact that God gave them up to this leads inevitably to the question, doesn't this make God the author of, or at least in some sense, to blame for human sin? And the answer, of course, is a resounding no, absolutely not, may it never be, God forbid, whatever translation you want to throw in on the kinds of questions in which Paul expresses this idea. James, the brother of Jesus, also makes this point exactly in verse 13 of chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Just don't. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And even in the context of Romans, Paul anticipated that this question was going to come up in various forms. Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, and it does, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak as a man, I speak in a human way, by no means. For how then could God judge the world? Our text, too, does not begin with God giving people up, or much less giving up on people. It begins with people giving up on God. You know this story from the early chapters of the book of Genesis where God is in fellowship with Adam and Eve, our first parents. He is walking with them in the garden in the cool of the day. He has given them the whole world that is before them for food. This one tree, no. And he's made it very clear to them, the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And they decide, well... If God was really good, he wouldn't be withholding this thing from us. And honestly, that's often the source of our temptations too. We know what God has said in scripture. We know the good that we ought to do. And yet we start to question the goodness of God. And we say, if God was really good, why would he withhold this thing? And we noted this in Romans 1. Last week, verse 24 begins with the word therefore, demonstrating that what follows in this chapter comes as a consequence of what came before. So God gave them up is the result of them exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images. They gave up on the living God. They turned to idols. Therefore, God gave them up to the very things that they wanted to pursue in the lust of their hearts. They chose to worship that which is corrupt and corruptible. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. As I mentioned last week, That word translated impurity in the ESV is a Greek word that means uncleanness. And in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, that word is used a lot in the book of Exodus. And not only in context of sexual sins. Yes, it's in that context too. But it's really in context of anything 
that damages, that breaks the relationship that we have with the Lord our God. So when Adam and Eve chose to eat of the forbidden fruit and to fall into sin, not only did they suddenly realize they were naked, but they became unclean in that sense. And because they became unclean, they had shame for the very first time in their lives. And that's what this uncleanness is. So those verses are not strictly speaking about sexual sin. They're just about sin. Jesus said out of the heart proceeds every manner of unrighteousness. And when God gave people up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that's the sort of thing that began to happen. But verse 26 gets a little more specific. For this reason, again, therefore, or because they had surrendered in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, God gives them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Now this is one of several passages of scripture which these days are often called clobber passages. You may have heard people make reference to the clobber passages. And depending on who's referring to it, they may count a bit fewer or a bit more, it doesn't matter, but what they're talking about is those passages of scripture from both the Old and the New Testament where God makes abundantly clear that homosexual sin is sin. Now, I'm not going to go into giving you a list, not today, of all of these so-called clobber passages. I object to the epithet. They are not clobber passages. They are just passages of scripture where God speaks with clarity about a particular issue. And I have in the past gotten into that debate in other contexts, and I probably will again. But I'm not going to here and now. There was a book a while back called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? And the thing is, whether or not we like this or want to hear it, the Bible really does teach what the church has believed and taught for the last 2,000 years. Up until very, very recently, this was nearly universal. The Bible teaches that homosexual sin, like all sexual sin, and in fact, like all sin, is sin. There's no reason, based on some new information about the original languages or anything else, to justify a change of the way that we think and teach and practice on this matter. But just a couple of things before we move on. Sometimes when we're having this conversation, People will say, why are you always picking on sexual sin? Sometimes they'll be even narrower. Why are you always picking on homosexual sin and, and not other sins? Isn't all sin the same? And in one sense, it is. Sin is sin. An unrepentant sin 
And that adjective, unrepentant, is incredibly important. Unrepentant sin of any kind leads to death. That's the trajectory that James outlined in the passage that I referenced earlier. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. That's the part that I read before. But James went on to say each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It doesn't matter the source or the focus of that desire. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth, brings forth death. That applies to all sin. Sin of every kind, without distinction. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. The lust... The impurity that is in our heart when we begin to nurture that gives birth to actual behavior and that behavior leads inevitably to death. On the other hand, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, flee from sexual immorality. And the word here, as in Romans 1, is pornea, from which we derive the word pornography. And the common translation of that word, fornication, speaks of all sexual sin. All of it. From the most obvious, the word pornea has an obvious derivative in our culture today, pornography. To the most extreme forms of sin, it all comes from this same place. So we are commanded in a very general sense to flee from sexual immorality of all kinds. And what does that mean? Well, Paul said something similar to Timothy in his letter to that young pastor. He said, flee the evil desires of youth. And I can't help but think that in the mind of Paul, this very well-educated And godly man who knew the Old Testament word for word, most likely, that when he talked about fleeing from sexual immorality, the image that he had in his mind was that image from the story that I read a bit earlier about Joseph. Joseph was being tempted. We don't know to what extent the temptation of Potiphar's wife might have been working in Joseph's heart as he struggled through Those days, we can only imagine what might have been happening. But a day came when Joseph had gone into the house and there was no one else there. And she came to him again and offered herself to him. And when Joseph realized, for whatever reason, that he was in some trouble here, he didn't say, you know what, let me me stop and pray about this. I want to see if maybe this is God's will. It seems like, you know, there might be something happening here. He didn't stop to pray about it. He didn't stop to think about it. He just fled. When she caught him by the garment saying once again after she had said, or as she had said many times, lie with me, he left his garment in her hand and he got himself out of the house. So flee Fornication, the apostle wrote. 
And we can take that in the same sense in which it was intended when he spoke to Timothy, in the same sense that it was intended when Joseph fled fornication in the house of Potiphar. And frankly, since this is by far more ubiquitous than the other sexual sins that we're referencing here today, if you've turned on the television or the computer or you have looked at a browser on your phone and some image pops up there, and as I did on Good Friday, I want to be clear, this isn't just about sex. If you're looking at an image on Pinterest that is making you covet something that you don't have, that's lust, that's covetousness, that's sin. Now, of course, when we're talking about pornography, we're talking about something else. And if you turn on your phone or your computer or your TV and you see an image that begins to resonate in the heart, then turn it off. And get out of the house and leave your phone behind. Flee sexual immorality. Flee fornication. Flee like Joseph fled when he left his garment in Potiphar's wife's hand and got out of the house. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning with the latter part of verse 18, says, Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So while all sin is sin, there is another sense in which all sexual sin is in a different category. And why would that be a particular problem, someone might ask? Well, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. As the late R.C. Sproul wrote, there seem to be many sins that are against the body. Nevertheless, in Paul's teaching, the physical union involved in sexual immorality has special consequences because it interferes with our Christian identity as people who have been united with Christ through the Holy Spirit. It really is all about identity. Sproul went on, it is perhaps significant that Paul's prohibition in this verse, flee from sexual immorality, is expressed in the very same way as the command to flee from idolatry, which is found in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. And I think it is true, because in some way, when we fail to flee from sexual immorality, whatever form that temptation might take in our particular situation, we take our body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where the Spirit dwells, and we use it for an idolatrous kind of activity or a false worship. Because all sin, and I mean that, all sin, is sin. Even sexual sin and all unrepentant sin leads inevitably to death, but according to Scripture, sexual sin, fornication, pornea, is in a category of its own, especially for those of us who are in Christ because we belong to God. Our bodies have become temples of the Holy Spirit. We have been made new creations in Christ Jesus, not so that we can go on living in whatever sin and impurity and dishonor 
seems to appeal to us and then claim salvation through faith in Christ at the end of our lives, but we have been made new creations in Christ Jesus so that we can truly glorify God in our bodies. So then flee fornication. Flee from sexual immorality of all kinds. One more thing. In case sexual immorality of one variety or another isn't your particular predilection, which it may very well not be, then consider the third time Paul uses that expression, God gave them up, here in Romans chapter 1. And we're going to come back to this next week and look at it more thoroughly. Um, If I were to just walk through this and spend five minutes on all 17 of the sins, we'd be here for a while yet, so we're not going to do that. We won't do it next week either, just so you'll know. But consider the direction of God gave them up, part three, verses 28 to 31, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Now there's an aspect of that which is like atheism. Um, I don't even believe there is a God. Okay, that's not acknowledging God. Um, The ironic part is how often these days that's, I don't even believe there is a God, and I hate him. (laughs) Okay, sure. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up, the third usage of that, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Well, we've seen in the previous two verses, so we can only imagine, here we go. This is like that place at the top of the roller coaster where it kind of slows down a little bit and then it takes off. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, how do you spell clobber passage? Because if you don't feel clobbered, by that one, if you don't see yourself reflected in that mirror somewhere, you have a really hard head and your eyes are closed. And it's time to open them up. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And hear that speak, because in the very next verse, Paul wrote, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The thing is, We need to understand this. When the Apostle Paul spoke of those who practice such things, deserving to die, he's not just talking about the sexual sinners in general, and certainly not about one particular subdivision of that sad category, 
When he said that, he's talking about all of us, every last one. From children who are disobedient to their parents, to those who do commit sexual sin, to those who gossip about it, to those who slander others, to those who are spiteful and malicious, those who practice such things deserve to die. He was talking about all of us. If I can skip ahead just a bit and for just a minute here as we end, Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not talking about there being some who are bigger sinners than others or some who've been more or less righteous, but you know others who've been way, way more sinful. We'll cover this in some depth when we get there, but all have sinned. That, you know, going back to where we were last Sunday, that's all y'all. That's not just y'all, that's all y'all. Every last one of us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But wait, there's more. Romans 6, 23. Paul says the wages of sin is death. They know the righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. And this is why, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Now the apostle goes on from there, thanks be to God, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's why this passage that I just read and the part that we talked about today, the part we're going to talk about in more depth next week, this passage that just clobbered every last one of us over the head is nevertheless part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is part of the good news. According to the Heidelberg Catechism, this is the part that you need to understand before you can even begin to understand the other part. And it's good news, it's part of the gospel, because yes, God gave mankind up in and to our sin. But as I mentioned earlier, and this is that important part again, the fact that God gave them up does not mean that God gave up on them. The fact that God gave us up, let's make it personal, does not mean that God gave up on us. He didn't, and he doesn't. As one pastor has said, the fact of the matter is God often uses the very consequences of our sin to draw people to himself. There are those whose testimony is, I got exactly what I wanted, and it ate me up on the inside. And that's what led me to the cross of Jesus Christ. When he tells that story, he's talking about sharing the gospel on a university campus with a young woman who represents one of those categories that we're so quick and we find it so easy to give up on. And as he prayed with her and she broke down and wept, he says, the thought that went through his mind was, you know, why should I be surprised? It takes no more of God's grace to save her than it took 
to save me. And we need to recognize that. When we look at the world around us, when we look even at the history of this sad, sinful, broken world, when you consider those figures that we think of as the worst of the worst in history, understand whether or not they were saved. It would not have taken any more of God's grace to save them than it took to save you. For yes, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's true, and that's us. But while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, but while we were still weak at just the right time, who did Christ die for? He died for the ungodly. And that's the reason for all this talk of sin in Romans 1, 2, and 3. I don't get particularly excited about it myself. As I said at the beginning, there were a lot of pastors who just skipped this part, skipped the good parts. Paul doesn't include this so that we can beat each other over the head with it or so that we can feel bad for the sake of feeling bad. My first church, we had sort of changed the format of the service and I had stopped reading the Ten Commandments every single week. And one guy came up to me after a service where we did not read them. He said, you know, I kind of miss that. I miss that weekly shot of guilt. I said, that's exactly why we're not doing it, because the point was not to get a weekly shot of guilt. And that's not the point here in Romans 1 either. Far less is the point so that we can console ourselves with the idea which is so often so prevalent in our culture that if everyone's guilty, then no one is. That's not the point either. Rather, as Jesus himself said in Luke 5, verses 31 and 32, those who are well, those who think they are well, have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So God gave us up to ungodliness but he gave us up to ungodliness because Christ died for the ungodly. And if we can be persuaded that the ungodly includes us, then we can also be assured that Christ died for us. If we walk through life thinking, well, I'm not ungodly, that doesn't apply to me. Well, then I guess... Christ didn't die for you. But if you can be persuaded that you are ungodly, then you can be assured that Christ died for you and that if you repent and turn to him in faith, if we repent and turn to him in faith, then he has fully paid for all our sins. He has fully satisfied as an older version of the catechism says in that rich theological word, 
he has fully satisfied for all our sins with his precious blood and has set us free from the tyranny of the devil. Just seven chapters after this bleak and depressing picture of mankind that we are seeing in Romans chapter 1, Paul will stop at what just might, if there is in some human sense, be a pinnacle in the Bible. And he will say, there is therefore now no condemnation. How much condemnation? None. For those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may God give us ears to hear what his spirit is saying to his church. Let's pray. Father, we are so quick to judge others for the sins that we don't commit. But help us look into the mirror of your holy word, even into this clobber passage, and see ourselves there, understanding that, yes, we were ungodly, but that Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us. And Father, create in us repentance to turn away from sin and faith to trust in the atoning sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that by grace, through faith and that not of ourselves, we may receive your free gift of salvation. And that having received it, Father, we would be new creations in Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray in his name. Amen.